All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Kabbalah Cafe. This is where we combine Kabbalah and cafe. Can we say that? Does that make sense? Not really. And breakfast. There you go. There's an English word for that. Okay, so welcome, everyone. Whether this is your, making up words this morning, manyth time or your first time, it is great to gather together for some Kabbalah study. Um, a special shout out to Annie, my new best friend, who is joining us here <laughs> live on Zoom. It's great to see you. It's great to have you here. All right. Hey, Alex. Hey, Mariana. Good to see you guys. All right. Hey, Norm. Welcome, welcome. It's great to see you. All right. So here's the deal. Here's what I want to speak about. The topic today is mystical secrets to success. And um, it's part of my mystical secrets to um, series. I'm kidding. But it's, uh, it's, it's, we're going to learn today Kabbal- Kabbalistic secrets or Jewish secrets to being successful. And what we're going to do is, at least we're going to start by looking at the very first and perhaps even the only biblical figure to be referred to as successful, which is, by the way, a very big term. People are called righteous. Noach is called a tzaddik. What about Lavan? Lavan is a tricky guy. Not successful. Not successful. Not successful. Abraham. Abraham is uh, one who loves God. Abraham is dedicated, a loyal servant. But, but the first person that we find in Torah, and, and, I, and the only, in my recollection, the only one, at least in the five books, about whom it's written that they are an Ish Matzliach, a successful person, is Yosef. Is Joseph. Joseph. And what's fascinating about this is that when you think about his story, his story seems to be anything but containing the ingredients of success. Jail. And by the way, I will say that in general, I, was, I spoke on Shabbos a few times over here, and all of the talks that I gave were about Yosef. Joseph, I'm obsessed with this guy, and I know. I know what you're thinking. Get in line behind Potiphar's wife. I get it. <laughs> but you know, there's something about this guy, something about... Yosef, about Joseph, that is quite remarkable. Now, what is it about Joseph? So let's go, and let me ask you guys, you prefer Joseph or Yosef? You guys have a preference? Either one? I'm just going to choose one. Yosef? I think you should interchange. Yeah, that's just going to be more confusing for everybody. All right, whatever. You could go Yosef. Oh, sorry. Yosef. Yosef. No. So here we go. Yosef is a young man, 17 years old, when his brothers kidnap him. They want to kill him. They throw him into a pit. The pit has, good morning guys, the, the pit has snakes and scorpions. Um, the Torah says, by the way, just so you know, the Torah says, mayim. The pit was empty, it had no water. Rashi says, the commentaries say, it had no water. If the Torah says it's empty... Why does it have to specify it has no water? It should say it's empty. It also has no water. We know that. If it's empty, there's no water. So why does the Torah say the pit that they threw Joseph, Joseph into was empty and it had no water? It means it was empty only of water. But it had snakes and scorpions. And apparently at some point, Yosef, exactly. And the mystics say, here's an extra bonus mystical insight, that Mayim is Torah. Water is analogous to Torah. Just like water always descends down, 
If you have a leak in your cup, the water will never stay put. It will always go down, right? Water always goes down. So to Torah, originates on high and comes down to us. So water is Torah. And the message that the Torah is te- teaching us is, oh, and what's a bar? What's the pit? The head. If the pit, if the mind is empty of water, i.e. Torah, then you know what it's going to have? Snakes and scorpions. A mind that's not preoccupied with divine wisdom is a mind that is otherwise susceptible to be filled with all sorts of dangerous ideas. When I say dangerous, I don't mean I'm going to take over the world dangerous. But I mean depressing, anxious, right, sad ideas. Oh, David, can you move down one way or the other? No, 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 yeah, we'll make space for you guys. We got two together. We got two together. We, have a, we had a reservation for two together. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And David, just your jacket also. Yeah. And but that's it. The reservation it. was for 1030, so you're a little bit <laughs> <laughs> All right, so here we go. So that, so this is, this is a little bit of an insight into the pit that he was thrown into and the insight that we can take from this. However, this is what I want to speak about. Yosef is thrown into a pit. He's then sold. This is classic human trafficking. He is kidnapped and sold, and he's sold multiple times. The Torah doesn't specifically say this, but we know from the Midrashic story, we know from, hey, it's our family story. We know the story. He was sold multiple times on the way down to Egypt. He ends up in Egypt. He's working for a man named Potiphar. There's drama there, but there's also success. And so here I want to pass around a handout that I prepared and read some of the verses that speak about Yosef in Egypt. So here we go. Please take a page. I'll give you (coughs) pleasure. I'm going to pull this up online and share this for everybody. Does Talmud ever uh, mention that maybe Joseph was liable a little bit for his uh, behavior when he was younger? Interesting. Uh, Yeah, you know what? Look, there's there's different... Now, it's a good question. There's different theories on this, a lot of different commentaries, and midrashim on the story of Yosef. Um, some that, you know, that, that uh, skewer the brothers as a word for what they did, and some that give them a little bit of exoneration. So it really depends on, you know, what we're learning. There's a lot of, a lot of different angles on this. But I want to share with you one specific angle that is going to be born of these verses that I, that I prepared. All right, so here we go. All right, it's shared. You guys should see it on Zoom on the screen. All right, the first one, the first um, excerpt, I'm calling the big cheese. Why? I don't know, but we'll find out. Here we go. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, Pharaoh's chamberlain, chief of the slaughterers, an Egyptian man, purchased him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Okay, so Joseph, the Torah tells us, after the kidnapping and sale, ends up in a man named Potiphar's house. Let's continue. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man. And he was in the house of his his Egyptian master. It seems like the Torah wants to emphasize that he wasn't just working for him as a slave, you know, off-site, but he was in the house. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and whatever he, Joseph, did, the Lord made prosper in his hand. Joseph found favor in his eyes, and he, Joseph, served him 
Potiphar. And he, Potiphar, appointed him over his house, and all that he gave, uh, sorry, and all that he had, he gave into his hand. Yeah, so far so good? Quick comment that when he said that he was a successful man, it makes it sound like he was describing like a description. Here's what, who, this is what Yosef is, like a description of him. Like it's interesting that how it's, um, that language. Yeah. Like, that's what he, like. he is. Right. Yeah. He wasn't just successful. Good. Good. Let me elaborate. He's not just, it's not just saying that he was successful at his job. He's saying he was a successful human being. Yeah. This is who he is. This, right. It's a personification of... Good. Good. Let's... Good. Let's, let's, get, let's finish and then we'll go back to this. Now, let's keep on going. Now, it came to pass that since he had appointed him over his house... And over all that he had, the Lord blessed the house of the Egyptian for Joseph's sake. In other words, God blessed the house of Potiphar in the merit of Joseph. And the blessing of the Lord was in all that he had, was in all that he had in the house and in the field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew nothing about what was with him except the bread that he ate. And Joseph had handsome features. And a beautiful complexion. And of course, I was thinking about like concluding that sentence with three dots instead of one, just to allude to the fact that the very next passage talks about Potiphar's wife, who takes a liking to Joseph and all the drama that ensues because of that. Did he not uh, uh, trust Joseph with his food? Because it said that's the one thing, because that's what got Pharaoh almost in trouble. He almost got. Rashi says food is a euphemism for his wife. Yes. The bread of sloth in this case. Right. In other words, that's a euphemism for his wife. So he, he gave him everything. He said, everything's yours. I don't know if he had to say it, but that was... Again, that's, a, that's foreshadowing literally what comes next in the next few passages. Now, what's interesting, again, I just want to reiterate what was already pointed out. Number one, the Torah refers to him as an Ishmael before it describes what type of success he has. It doesn't say he was, successfully, uh, he was successful financially or he was successful. I mean, it does eventually say that, but it starts off with this kind of uh, larger preamble. He was a successful man. But before it says that he was a su- successful man, what, what does it say right before that? The Lord was with Joseph. There's two ways to understand that. Help me out. What are the two ways to understand that? Number one. Good. Number two? He made himself successful. No, he was the Lord was guarding him. Yeah, that's all part of number one. What's the second understanding? Between the, for the first part or both together? Yeah. I don't know. What is, when you hear the word, the Lord was with Joseph, what, is that, what, is that, what does that sound like? What are we saying? God's doing it. Sure. What else does it sound like? That's all one. That's all one option. Y'all are consistent. I'll tell you, I'll tell you the second understanding. The Lord was with Joseph could mean also that Joseph carried God with him. The Lord was with him could also mean that wherever he went, the Lord was with him because he took him everywhere. You with me? When you say that God, yes. When you say that God is with someone, either it's God is watching over that person, protecting that person, you know, blessing that person, or you could say God is with them also means that they're the one that's taking God with them. Yeah? yeah? You with me on that? Uh-huh. 
I think both work together. God is always with us. We just have an awareness or not. Are we open? Right. Are we open to allow that blessing to reside? And so the Torah says that the Lord was with Joseph, which could mean that Joseph is the one who opened up that channel and he was a successful man. Now, I want to keep on reading because there's the next section. And this is after the drama of Potiphar's wife and her attempted seduction of Joseph. By the way, the Talmud says that he was, he was ready to give in. She had, she, had, um, she had approached him many times. This one day he was actually ready to give in. The Talmud says that he was ready to go ahead. But at the last moment, a vision of his father flashed before his eyes. And he couldn't, and he do, it. couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Yeah, and he ran away with his cloak in her hand. Been, been, been there and done that. Yeah. Been, All right. <laughs> We're not going to touch that. Now, here we go. All right. This is going to get more interesting than I thought. Now, here we go. So, so, the, the, so then, the, then the Torah segues into what happens next. So what happens next is that she flips the tables on him, and she says, he tried to attack me, and, he, he, and, and Joseph gets thrown into prison in the section that I've called here Jailhouse Rock. I was a little bored last night and I decided to come up with, uh, I figured the big cheese because he's in the butcher's house, not so kosher, I don't know, whatever. That was my thought. Jailhouse Rock. Here we go. Joseph's master took him and put him into prison. Joseph's master would be Potiphar, right? So after the accusation, of his wife. So he says, all right, I have no, I have no choice. I've got to lock you away. The place where the king's prisoners were in prison. So this is the royal prison. And he was there in prison. It says prison a few times, so it's clear that he was in prison. The Lord, oh, look at this again. Look at this. The Lord was with Joseph. Sound familiar? Yeah? Remember the two understandings of it? Either God was with him or he brought God with him. Right, either way, same thing, almost. Right, so the Lord was, was with Joseph, and he, God, extended charisma to him. What a line. Is that the Hebrew word, charisma? It says it, transliterated in the Hebrew. I'm kidding. No, 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 that was a joke. Um, uh, I forgot the word. I forgot the word. Huh? First one for today. First one what? Joke. No, I had one before. Didn't you? I thought so. Did we like didn't recognize <laughs> <laughs> Not all jokes are recognized as such. That could be better, it could be worse. I'm not sure. So, that, but that's an interesting line. God extended charisma to him. That's pretty cool. That means not just success, charisma. There's no, there's no other biblical figure that is referred to like this. Someone who's successful and oozing charisma, I'm adding oozing. And charismatic, that's amazing. Who else has charisma? Let's say about Moshe. Moses had charisma. He goes to God and says, I can't speak. I'm not a speaker. I'm not a public speaker. He's saying, I'm the anti-charismatic guy. You got the wrong guy. I have anti-charisma. Huh? Go find Yosef. Go find that guy. Go find Aaron. Yeah, go find Aaron. So was he successful first? Did he have charisma first? So, we, so success comes first. Or the reference of success comes before the reference of charisma. But is all charisma spiritual charisma from God? Is all charisma spiritual charisma? I don't know. I, I don't think so. But in this case, his charisma is a divine... Is it the only place where it's mentioned in the Bible, charisma? 
Five books for sure. I can't tell you about all of Nach. My scanning is down today of, uh, of all of uh, the other books. But the, fi- and the five books, I mean, we all know the main, major characters. No one, else is, no one else is talked about even close to these types of uh, adjectives. Successful, charismatic. Judah, Judah had you know, such stark leadership. He was, it was strong, yeah, but Judah, all, yeah, not, not in this way. Didn't his father basically have the same thing too when he went to work for Laban to buy Rachel first? Well, first he worked for him for seven years, then he worked another seven the years. The old switcheroo. Right. right. But he was successful. Yes. He, he built up his flocks and yes. everything else. So yeah. he was successful too. He so was very the successful. The apple didn't fall very far from the tree. Correct. <laughs> it doesn't refer to him though as an Ishmatzliach. And to go back to the original, to the original analysis that somebody pointed out, it's not just saying he was successful financially. It's saying he was a successful human being. But his words, you said, a person of success, a man of success. But they, it's incredible. Yeah. But they don't talk about him as a tzaddik. We have a phrase that we use. Yeah. Yosef had tzaddik. But does the Torah refer to him as a tzaddik? Right, that's what I'm saying. It's, I don't believe so. I don't think they refer to The reason why I say this, not to bore everyone, but growing up and learning this in day school, he didn't come off as the tzaddik. He How did he come off as? He was a fighter, he was a survivor. Yeah. He, you know, he was a lucky guy. But you don't see him as a tzaddik. All right, well, what's... Well, we're not fo- that today. That's not the focus either way. Okay. Let's get back to success. So let's take a look. So let's go back into the second paragraph in Jailhouse Rock. I just love saying that. Um, paragraph two, line one. We're going to start again. The Lord was was with Joseph, and He extended charisma to him, and He gave him favor in the eyes of the warden of the prison. So now Joseph is locked up in prison, and God is with him, and God is with him in both understandings. God is giving him charisma. And giving him, granting him favor in the eyes of the warden of the prison. In other words, the warden likes this guy. He likes this guy. So the warden of the prison, look at this, delivered all the prisoners who were in the prison into Joseph's hand. And whatever they did there, he was the one who did it. You know what we call that in uh, Yiddish? He was? The macher. Yeah, the big macher. He was the guy who, who did everything. He's a prisoner. But meanwhile, the warden trusts him to be his right-hand man. It's more than the right-hand man. Whatever they did, he's the one who did it. He was the one who was in charge, essentially. How many cigarettes did it cost him? Uh, right? It's unbelievable. Let's continue. Let's continue. The warden of the prison. Second page, second, second uh, yeah, back page. The warden of the prison did not inspect anything that was in his hand. For the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made prosper. It's unbelievable. Not only was he trusted, the warden didn't oversee, didn't have to, wasn't afraid of any impropriety. Whatever Yosef did was kosher. He trusted him completely. And this, of course, precipitates the next part of the story where the butler and the baker have dreams. He interprets the dreams. The butler... Is, um, is released from prison. The baker is executed. The butler eventually remembers Joseph as an interpreter of dreams. Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams, becomes viceroy, 
and the rest is history and success breeds more success. Now what's remarkable about the Joseph story and why I think part of why I love this story so much is because it speaks to this incredible idea which is you can take this person and you can put him in any circumstance. doesn't matter. You put him in a pit. You put him as a slave. You put him as a prisoner. You can do whatever you want to him. He doesn't lose his faith. He doesn't lose his trust. He is successful and charismatic, no matter where you put him. And it also reminds us that how you and I, how we show up to circumstance, we can't control what happens to us. Always. Ever. Right? What happens to us is out of our control. But how we respond or how we show up under those circumstances is absolutely within our, within our control. And so how we show up determines whether or not we will be in this context successful or not. Here's a person who by all accounts could have become completely despondent, bitter, angry, uh, rageful, broken, uh, shattered, I don't know, from, from one extreme to the other, he could have justifiably responded in any of these types of ways. He could have said to himself, my life is over, my future is finished, I have no, I have no hope anymore, I'm done. And why? Because of what these people did to me. My brothers, Potiphar's wife, the system, he could have blamed anything and everything. And you know what? He would have been right. He would have been right, 100% right. He was the victim of incredible abuse and trauma, 100%. And he could have said, and that's why my life is ruined. And you know what? He would have been right. But he chose another path. He chose another path. He chose to say, I don't view myself as a victim. I don't view myself as broken. I view myself as noble. I view myself as someone who has an opportunity, not someone who has been denied opportunities. I have an opportunity. The guy is in prison. What do you think prisons in ancient Egypt look like? Can you imagine? Probably not luxurious. He's in a prison in ancient Egypt and he shows up with, with charm, with chen, with charisma. Clean the place up. It's, uh, clean the place up. He's finding opportunities in the craziest places. So either he's the, the, the most naive optimist in history, which one could say perhaps, Hey, he was the dreamer, after all. So maybe his naivete worked out for him. He wasn't a dreamer. One second. You, either he that. not a dreamer. One second. Or, or we would say this. That because, that because of his faith in God, because he took God with him, God was with him. Is that passive or active? Due to no doing of his own or because he brought God with him. Because God was with him, i.e. because he felt God wherever he was, he viewed no place as a disaster, no place as a mistake, no place as devoid of an opportunity. I'll tell you a story. 1979, I think, or some other year. There was a Chabad women's conference in Detroit, Michigan. Then you snuck in. What? Then you snuck in. No. <laughs> Lifeguard at the middle. Absolutely not. So here's what happens. Huh? In Detroit. So I don't know if it was 70, I think it was 79 or maybe early 80s. There was a women's conference in Detroit. Like over the weekend. 
you weren't invited. <laughs> so, um, and then so it was, you know, for the weekend, and it took place in the winter. I don't know who scheduled it in the winter, but that's when it was. And everyone was scheduled to go back on Sunday. And a massive snowstorm breaks out. A blizzard, right? Detroit, yeah, story checks out, it's possible. Having lived in Detroit, like I'm from Pittsburgh, I know that could happen. Pittsburgh, New York, Chicago, Detroit, all could happen. Okay, so what happens is, all the flights are canceled. And there's a little bit of panic. There's like a few hundred women. And there's a lot of panic, why? Because everyone's gotta get home. Families and children and jobs and everything. Everyone's gotta get home. So because of the Chabad conference, so what do you do when you're, when you're in a little bit of a predicament? Also, but back in the day, what would you do? You call 770. So they called 770 being HQ of Chabad, right? Brooklyn, Crown Heights, right? You call HQ. You, you try to get a, get a blessing and for success, right? Speaking of success. So they called HQ. They call headquarters. And they shared what was going on. And they explained how, how a lot of the women were a little bit anxious because they were stuck in Detroit. The answer they got back from the Rebbe was, you're not stuck in Detroit. If you're in Detroit, you're there for a reason. You're not stuck in Detroit. If you're there, it's, it's for a reason, it's for a purpose. And so that evening, I think even amidst the, uh, the blizzard, I think a lot of the women went out and maybe you know, gave out Shabbat candles. I know it's early, it was Sunday, whatever, but like, you know, did whatever it is that they, that they did to you know, spread Yiddishkeit in the city. But I think this is a Yosef mindset. Are you ever stuck? I'm stuck in Detroit. You're stuck in Detroit. You're in Detroit? There's a reason. I'm stuck in jail. You're stuck in jail? That's stuck in jail. Joseph, you're stuck in prison. He could have easily said, my life is over. You know, I, I was brave and I tried. I was a slave and I still put on my best, you know, still put my best foot forward. But now I've been framed for a crime I didn't commit. Done. It's over. I'm finished. Could have easily said that. What would you, I mean, God forbid, but what would, ask yourself, what would you have done? Be honest. What would you have done? It would be very easy to shut down and say, my life is over. For somebody to say that I still see opportunity here, I'm going to show up with a positive attitude is incredible. And it goes back to those verses a few times that say that God was with Joseph. You could look at it as this man was supernaturally blessed by God and God was with him to lift him up and to protect him and to shelter him and magically create this fortress of positivity around him. You could interpret it like that. I don't. God was with him the way I see it means that Joseph is the one who was open to seeing the godliness in every circumstance and in every single person around him. And so, yeah, when the butler and the baker are looking despondent, he says, Why do your faces look downcast today? What kind of question is that? You're in prison. What, are they supposed to be smiling? What do you think? He noticed that today they looked a little bit more sad than yesterday. So was he maybe the first one to really, with all of this going on, engage with the outside world in other words go out of the you know insular absolutely so i mean isn't that a huge aspect of this 
Abraham, yes. Abraham did outreach, certainly. But I think outreach in such hostile territory, I mean, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, look, you could say a lot for Abraham also. He invited everyone into his tent, even those, not even those, everyone then wasn't, no one was a monotheist other than him. So certainly that was a bit of a hostile thing, but it was in the context of food. You know, you could say, uh, context of an invitation, you could say that Joseph certainly was the one who was in hostile territory and still showed up in that way. In this, you say, or not you say, but it says in here that the Egyptians saw what his God did for him, so it's almost a recognition that maybe we got the wrong God working for us. Right. Also, right, so it could be. But the other thing about that that, that that rings true is that Joseph wasn't just charismatic. He wasn't just a magnetic personality. He wasn't just charming. He was a guy who, when you looked at him and when you spoke to him, you realized that he was a man of faith. They saw that God was with him. In other words, both ways, that he was blessed by God, but that he carried God with him. In other words, he, he was about God. Is that right? He was he was into God. Yeah. I want to share something in connection with this. It says God was with him, and he commented that why was God with him? He brought God with him. And I discovered something like a few years ago that I, when I discovered this, I posted on Facebook. This is critical to life itself, and it has to do with this. And it, and uh, it has to do also with <clears throat> this is a Kabbalah class, Kabbalah cafe. So there's Kabbalah idea. Meaning, where am I going? How did how did Yosef bring God with him? Well, that's great. Yosef brought God with him, so God was involved in all, all everywhere. This is fantastic. I mean, if you can bring God with you, then you're going to be successful, and you're going to have charisma, and all you know. So, what was the means by which he did that? And another way of saying that is in the morning brachas, we saw these brachas. God, you open the eyes of the blind. You 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 you, you lift up the backbone. You this is this God is amazing. Provide for every need. He can give you all, take care of all your needs. I mean, if you can connect to this God, you're good to go. So, so there's in Kabbalah, in Kabbalah, there's a thing to do with Hashem's names, and that Hashem is one with His name. And and all for Yosef Gigatil, he's a rebbe. quotes sometimes, you know, in memoriam. He talks about how that that God that um, just like David or God, everything is dependent on God. So too, everything is dependent on His name. His name Yud K Vav So that if a person were able to meditate, and 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 in Kabbalah talks about meditating on God's names, and if you're able to meditate on God's names, Hashem is going to listen to you and give you everything you want. This is the language in Kabbalah. So. It's a powerful thing. It's, a, it's an amazing tool in using your mind to always bring God with you to think about God's name, which is Yud and K and Bab K, actual letters, the actual letters. It says in Tanya that God is one with the letters on the parchment. And the, the, literally the ink on the parchment, that the, the, the almighty God. I gotta, I gotta stop you. So you're advocating for, what does it mean to bring God into your life? To meditate on the name of Hashem. The name of Hashem. Beautiful. Beautiful. I would say also, in the context of tefillah, of prayer, that prayer is, I think prayer has a big uh, misconception. It's not about saying words on a page. I mean, it's also about that, but it's really primarily about a focus and a meditation and a thought. It's taking us on a journey, internal journey inside, an awareness journey. 
I think there's a lot of powerful contemplation there, but you're right. It's about, it's about being aware. It's an awareness which can come through various means, including meditation. Now, to get back, yeah. Now, to get back to this idea, Joseph's success. So what we have here is something, is a powerful idea. Joseph is successful. He's successful because God is with him, because he recognizes that God is with him. And God makes everything that he touches turned, he's like an alchemist, turned to gold. Spiritual and physical alchemy. He's making things be a success. And literally, he saves the economy of the country. He saves the agriculture of the country, right? In his, through his uh, Midas touch, shall we say, to mix uh, all sorts of uh, systems of belief, right? He has this Midas touch to make things work and work magnificently. What we find in Kabbalah and in classic Jewish thought as well is a few different ingredients to the success. Number one, as we've been discussing today, Faith, faith in God. If he loses his faith in God, if he instead puts his power in human beings and human beings fail him, well, then he would likely be a very broken person. He puts his faith in God. God cannot fail him. God will not fail him. God does not fail him. If he's in a situation, it's designated by God for as an opportunity and not in any way a negative. So that's number one, faith. Number two, we find that wherever he is, he works hard. He's dedicated, he's working hard. He's not just a person, a prisoner, who is being imprisoned passively like everyone else. He's active, right? He's being trusted with responsibility. In the butcher's house, Potiphar's house, it's the same thing. The, the butcher, Potiphar, gives Joseph all the responsibilities. He gives him everything, which means, again, that Joseph wasn't just someone to do the bare minimum and get away with it. He was somebody who was motivated to work hard. Number two, sorry, number three, he appreciated what he did. He appreciated what he did. We see that with the idea of the charisma. Charisma means that a person is showing up and is displaying an air of excitement, enthusiasm, positivity around what they're doing. So again, we have this magical combination of faith, dedication, and positivity that's combining to create the success of Joseph. Of course, it's all with Hashem's blessings. But key ingredients on his side is having faith in God, right? Being dedicated, looking not to get out of work and responsibility, but looking to take on responsibility, but doing so with a smile and positivity. Those are three elements of success. So we think about how, we, how do we translate this into our work? Want to jump in? I was going to ask you, sort of answer prior, but do the commentaries comment on the definition of success? You just did, but is it any of the commentaries? It's a good question. How do you define success? Maybe someone who has faith, who's dedicated, and who remains positive. I don't know. It could be. Nothing comes. Success is relative. I think so too. But in this case, saying what, what, is def- what defines a man of success, right? An Ishmatzliach, someone who, who has faith in Hashem, faith in God, someone who is dedicated to the task, and someone who's positive. So now think about this in the context of our work, right? Right? You go to work. So for a lot of people, for some people, work is a drag. It's like, oh, gotta go to work, 
right? Got to go to work. Oh, it's a pain. It's this and that, which is fine. Makes sense, right? Work, we'd rather not be working than working, perhaps. Joseph tells us that wherever we are, be positive, charismatic. Some people go to work and we try to do the least amount of work possible. Like, what is the least amount that I can do? It's like they tell a joke. Guy's driving down the street or walking down the street and he sees uh, municipal workers or city workers. One is digging a hole. The other one's filling it up. No, 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 this is different. Oh, I know this. You know this one? One guy is digging the hole. The next one comes and fills it up. The same hole. The guy says, what are you doing? He says, well, usually, so the, the crew says, usually we have three in the crew. Right? The third, I dig the hole. The other guy puts down the pipe. And the third guy covers it up. Just because that guy is sick today. We shouldn't work? What do you mean? So one guy's digging, one guy's filling. Right? So questions like this in life, right? Yeah, I try on recollection once in a while. So, so the question is, are we doing our utmost? Or are we doing, you know, just skating by? But all of this, all of this is due to faith. Faith is the key ingredient. What is faith? Faith means not just I believe, you know, um, in God. Faith means that I believe that God has incredible blessings for me. That are, being, that are waiting to be delivered. God is waiting to deliver them to me. And God wants me to create a vessel, to create a channel, to create a receptacle, a, 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 a keili, to receive these incredible blessings. Right? That is what faith means. Faith means that I believe that God is working through me, through my work, that God is going to bless what I touch, not because of me and my greatness, but because that's the, that's the system that he created. He wants to give blessings, but he doesn't want to have to pull off a magic trick. How is he going to wire the money into our account? How is that going to happen? Right? Imagine if the bank gets a wire from God. It's going to raise all sorts of questions. Right? It's going to be all sorts of complicated. Right? Who's the source? Where is it coming from? Kosher, not kosher. What's going on? So God says, give me an alibi. I want to give you the blessing. Right? Create an alibi. So I can launder, launder, I don't know if that's the right word, so I can smuggle the blessing into your work. That's the way we look at it. That's the faith. That's what it means that God is with us. It means when we're doing our work, it's not a space absent of God. It's not like God is in Torah, God is in the mitzvah, God is in the synagogue, God is in the holidays, but at work, eh, it's just work. No, God is here too. In all of our ways, we're meant to know God. In other words, in everything that we do, all activities, including, and I would say especially work. I mean, what other activity do we do for so many hours of our life? Work is a major part of life. And the message here, like Yosef, is that whether you find yourself working for a butcher in Egypt or working for a warden in Egypt, I guess, both in Egypt. Doesn't matter. The work that you're doing can be spectacular. If you have faith, dedication, and positivity. But again, the dedication and positivity stems from the faith. Stems from that. Ish matzliach, a successful person. You see, remember the order of the verse. God is with him, which again, I understand to be, he's taking God with him. Right? God is with him. 
He's successful, and because of that, he works hard, and he has the charm, and he's positive. All of that stems from point number one, which is the faith. So with this in mind, what I want to do is jump into our text, which we have not done in a few weeks. What were we in here? Well, the, oh, there is one more text, actually. Oh, sorry, soon. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, I think we're taking you out of it. <clears throat> There's like a phrase, like, what can I do for you? You're there, but you're really the conduit. Like, God is the puppet master, and we're the puppets. But, and we're there for that reason. Nice, nice. I also, what you said also evoked something else, which I think is very important to our conversation, both now and soon inside, is that when we think about work, it's not just what, it's not just about faith in God and what we're doing, it, or dedication necessarily, you know, dedication to the task, but it's also the relationships that we have, right? Whether it's the person that we're working for, working with, or those that are working for us, it's also about those relationships and creating positive relationships. Think about the relationships that Yosef builds. Very positive rapport with his master, with, the, with Potiphar, with the warden. It's a very positive relationship. It's not, a it's not a contentious relationship. Anyway, so that's something to also keep in mind. Now, there is one more text that I have. I'll just show on the screen. Um, yeah, we'll just read it quickly. Okay, this is about Eliezer. Huh? Abraham. Abraham's uh, servant, trusted servant. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Remember this? Mm -hmm. Remember when the Torah talks about um, Abraham and his son Isaac? This is after the Akedah, after the binding of Isaac. So the Torah tells us, and after Sarah, Abraham's wife, Isaac's mother, passes away. So the Torah says, and let's just read this inside. This is from earlier in Genesis, chapter 24. Abraham was old. Right, so you have, this is the last section of the handout. Abraham was old, advanced in days, and the Lord had blessed Abraham with everything. With everything. That's a big statement. Bakol is numerically equivalent to Ben. You know what Ben means in Hebrew? A son. God blessed Abraham with everything means he gave him a son. Which leads into the very next verses. Abraham said to his servant, the elder of, the, of his house, who ruled over all that was his. Look at this. Abraham said to his servant, the elder of his house, who ruled over all that was his. What does that imply? Not imply. What does that say? He put a servant in charge. Ah, oh, sounds like Joseph. Joseph. Yossi. What was Abraham's servant's name? Eliezer. It's not written here. Eliezer. Eliezer. Eliezer was Abraham's servant. Also the name of one of my kids. Um, what's your name? Look at that. There you go. You're a modern day Eliezer. Eliezer was the rock star in Abraham's house. He says to him, please place your hand under my thigh and I will adjure you by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose midst I dwell, but you shall go to my land and to my birthplace, and you shall take a wife for my son, for Isaac. He says, basically, to his servant, his trusted servant, I trust you to find a wife for my son. Isaac was not allowed to leave Israel. From the moment he was brought up as an offering on the altar, that made him Kodesh HaKadashim, holy of holies. He became a holy offering. 
as it's known in Halach and Jewish law, if an animal is brought up onto the altar, and for whatever reason is not offered as a sacrifice, let's say they discovered a blemish on the animal, the animal is not released back into the wild. Once it's brought up into the temple on the altar, it remains holy forever for the rest of its life. It has to be in the holy city of Jerusalem. The same thing is true with, with Isaac. The moment he was brought up as an offering, even though obviously he wasn't actually sacrificed, but that from that moment on, he was never permitted to leave the land of Israel, the holy land, which was before it was called Israel, but he wasn't able to leave. So Abraham says, I want a, a daughter-in-law, a wife for my son, Isaac, and the, 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 the Canaanites, uh, in, whose, in, in whose midst we live, they're all idol worshipers. And so I want you, he says to Eliezer, to go back to my land, to my original birthplace land, and go find a wife suitable for my son, and bring her back, etc. And that's, that's how the rest of the story goes. The point of all this is to say that there is a precedent, a biblical precedent, or a precedent, there's another uh, biblical figure who's far less well-known than Joseph, Eliezer, who also is referred to as um, someone who's not just a servant, but who rules over all that was his. In other words, someone who is given a lot of responsibility and a lot of trust. You only give responsibility and you only trust someone who shows up in a certain way. Someone who goes beyond the bare minimum. Someone who has that type of charm and charisma as well. All right. Exactly. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Now, uh, I want to jump in. Okay, so let's, that's it for the handout. Now we can get to the entree. Entree? Humble. Interesting. Um, would humble be the best word to describe him? I would say he had a, 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 a an element of humility. In other words, I don't know. I mean, he said, "It's not me; it's God." Yeah. Right. There is an element of humility, but it's not. So here's the thing: it's not humble like you and I typically picture humble meek and weak and bent over and not confident. Here's a guy who walked with confidence, who was charismatic, who was, I don't know, I'm just embellishing a little bit, but kind of like the life of the party wherever he was. Not exactly what I'm saying, but like he was the center of attention wherever he was. So clearly not humble in the classical sense of humble, a guy who you know is self-effacing and beating oneself up, but humble in the sense of recognizing that it's all coming from God, that God has put me here, that God has given me an opportunity, etc. That that is also a, a type of, humil- of 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 being humble or uh, humility that I think he very much expresses. He wasn't arrogant. Supposedly he didn't like uh, show off, or did he show off his his charisma and good looks, or do, do we know? You know, it's interesting. It says that part of the reason why his brothers didn't like him, he used to comb his hair, and like, I don't know, Rashi says he used to like um, play with his eye, like his eyes or something. He used to like, yeah, which sounds like who cares, right? But, I, but for, for, one of the, for one of the brothers, right, one of the sons of Yaakov then to like look at his appearance and like, you know. So he viewed him as being vain? Yeah, yeah, they did view him as being vain or immature. Joseph. Yeah, they're like, oh, the pretty boy. Like, oh, 
Joseph. Oh, that's, no, that's literally, I'm, yeah, that's what, that's what it says. What happened to a coat? They got sent back. They, 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 they took it. They yeah, they, they took it, yeah. So why wasn't Joseph considered one of the patriarchs? Oh, we only have three. <laughs> it's interesting. We are it's like the three musketeers. Yaakov had too many children. So it's a good question. There's a, there's a practical answer, spiritual answer. Practical answer is, I don't know, they, they had, for the first three, there was only one, so it was easier. Once you have 12, now what are you going to do? You have like 12 more, there's like a lot of patriarchs there. It's a practical answer. Spiritual answer is because the, 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 the avodah, the service, or the, the spiritual work of the patriarchs, Avot, right, patriarch, fathers, bequeathed to the children. So the, the primary avodah, the service of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those are primary elements of divine service that everyone has a piece of. The tribes are specific manifestations of that. So it shows up in different ways in everybody. And maybe someone doesn't have one of the 12 tribes' style. But the patriarchs, everyone has as a Yerusha, as an inheritance, because they are, they are the avot, they are the, the fathers. That's uh, a bit more of a mystical spiritual answer. All right, now let's jump into our text. So, and here's where I want to place, contextualize the text today. So, in our discourse, which I've called um, spiritual surrender, we've talked about two types of spiritual personas, the son and the servant. The son is the one, like a child to a father, a child who loves the father or loves the parent and is excited about doing what they want. So the child, you know, the parent wants something. The child even anticipates it before the parent even asks for it and wants to do it and knows why it's important and is excited about doing it. That's the type of service. That's when you're locked into a mitzvah. You're excited to do it. It doesn't feel like a burden at all. You're super excited to do the mitzvah. That's what it means to be like a child. And then you have the servant persona. And that's the opposite extreme. You're not excited about it. You're not enthusiastic. You're not like, I get it. I know it. I understand it. I'm super excited. No. Like, it's a burden. It's a, it's a yoke. It's something that I have to bear. I don't want to say the... Uh, Endure. <laughs> you know, the cross that I have to bear, right? But this is what I have to bear. And... Um, but this is it. I'm dedicated. I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm a simple servant. I don't want to do it, but I'm going to do it. I'm dedicated, and that's it. Like I, it's almost like I have to do it. And the last few weeks, I've been speaking about the value of the latter over the former. Hey, good morning. Right? It seems like the optimal way to serve God is with excitement and enthusiasm, like a child serving a parent. That would seem like the best way. However, on the flip side, there's, a, there's value in the service of a servant to a master. And what's the value of that? The value is dedication. It's not about you. It's about the task that has to get done. Fine. Today we introduce a third persona. We had the child. We have the servant. Today we drop someone, a, a persona, an archetype that we are going to talk about for many, many pages in our text. And that is an Ever Neeman, which translates... Faithful servant or a trusted servant. This is what I like to call a hybrid between child and servant. The child doesn't feel like a burden at all. Child, it's, it's not even work. It's family. 
It's not work. It's, it's, my, it's my dad. It's my mom. It's not work. That's the child. The servant, oh man, it's hard. It's, you feel the pressure and you're only doing it because you're a servant. You're, you're dedicated to the cause. The loyal servant is a hybrid. Feeling the dedication of, well, feeling the service of the servant, but with a little bit of love and enthusiasm of the child. It's kind of in between the two. It's a magical combination. And as we'll see, there's a reason why we did the, uh, uh, the intro today. As we'll see, who embodies or who encapsulates or who um, uh, personifies this Evid Ne'eman, this trusted, faithful servant? Who do you think? Yosef. Yosef, Joseph. He's the guy. What, you think he wanted to be in Potiphar's house? <laughs> what, he felt like a child of a Potiphar? Oh, Papa. You think he called Potiphar Papa? Of course not. He was a servant, and yet his service wasn't crushed. He was fully present. He was fully there. He was shining. He had char- charisma. He wanted to be in prison. Excited to be in prison? Of course not. <coughs> I have he a, felt it. I have a customer yeah. that um, wants all of their employees to act with a servant's heart. What do they mean by that? That is their philosophy, their motto, that they're going to work, they're going to have the passion to work with a servant's heart. Interesting. Which one would that be? This one? This middle one? Yes. Okay, cool. Oh, is it a Christian thing? Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. It's the only way they could pull it off. Jews wouldn't do that. Well. With a servant's heart? Yeah, I think I get it. But it means, oh, it means servant with that dedication Correct. to a task. Yeah. At the same time, maybe the heart indicates, I'm trying now to an- analyze this Talmudically, the heart, I guess, would be with that love and passion. All right. Either way, that's, that's what we're, whatever the, the, whatever the label is, that's what we're going for. So let's read it inside. It's really beautiful and magnificent. So I got to tell you what page we're on. We are on page. I'm going to put this on the screen so you all can see it. Where am I? Oh, you want to see the you folks? You said you're putting it on the screen. How else are we going to see? Well, you have it right there. You have it right there. I have to find the... Where is the PDF here? All right, hold on. Oh, no, we, we sense it. You sense it. We are sensing it. We sense it and the lack of all right, hold on, hold on. I don't know why it's not appearing in my Zoom tray of possibilities. Oh, here we go. Now we've got it. Okay, joyful servant. Here we go, page 34. This is going to be great. Page 34. Oh, you guys are on page 34. Oh, I'm so good. All right, page 34, the beginning of this handout. The joyful servant. There is, however, a type of servant. Now remember, in the text we just spoke about the servant who feels crushed who feels the yoke, who feels like, again, uh, um, uh, dedicated to the task because the task is a heavy burden. But now we have another, another persona. There is, however, a type of servant who serves out of love and pleasure and joy. Not a, not a son who doesn't serve. Not a servant who doesn't love. You with me? But a joyful servant. Right in the middle. For he rejoices. Huh? 
No, but the son doesn't feel at a service. It says family. I'm working for my dad. I'm not working. Yeah, it's not even, right, that's what I mean. The son has the joy, but not the service. Yeah, he's doing, but it doesn't feel like service. The servant has the service without the joy. This one has the love and the service. So again, for he rejoices and takes pleasure in his work because of his great love and connection, heart and soul, to his master. Here he talks about the relationship piece of it. Not so much the Joseph faith piece of it, but the relationship piece of it. He's connected with his master. He's connected with the task. So therefore, he does it with joy. Let's continue. Top of 36. And this bond in love, he contrasts it, right? Does not arise because he is a derivative. That's a weird translation. Okay. Because he is a derivative of his masters in the case of a child. In other words, his love is not because it's my mishpach, it's my family. No, he's not family. He's a servant. Right? And it also doesn't become, it's also not because he derives benefit from him, i.e. that he gains from being attached to the master. As, and when the servant reveals his love, he receives from the master. This is not a transactional relationship either. As is the case, let's say, in a love relationship where one is expressing love but also expecting love to be returned. This is not that. This is a servant to a master. So it's really going one way. The love, right? The love is going one way from the servant to the master. It's not like he's loving the master, the master is going to love him. <laughs> it's like some, you know, weird situation. No, this is like, this is one way. So it's not a child who has a natural inborn innate DNA love to the father. This is a servant. It's not a servant who feels crushed, servant who feels love. And it's not love to get, it's a love to give. Rather, it is because the servant is a person of lofty stature. So here he talks about the servant is someone who is, someone who has a sensitivity, someone who has, who has, uh, what, is, what is the Hebrew? Madrega. someone who has, Lofty stature, who therefore knows and recognizes the greatness of the master and his loftiness. Obviously, when we talk about the greatness of the master, this is, a, this is an analogy or a parable. And we can't divorce it from where we're going to end up with this, which is about us and God. That's why we talk about someone who recognizes the greatness of the master. He's obviously talking about a human being who serves God out of a recognition of the greatness of Hashem. And therefore, loves to do a mitzvah. Why? Not because I'm getting anything from it. Not because I feel like a child, which could also be the feeling. But because I'm dedicated to Hashem, because of Hashem's greatness. He therefore binds himself to his master with love and much, and much affection. Because of the master himself. Not because of the servant's benefit from the master. I.e., that the master is good for him. Right? It's not self Serving, it's not self-fulfilling, it's not about self, it's about giving, it's about dedication. And this, he says, motivates his service, to serve his master and attend to him, all of which is done in a manner of kabbalat ol. Kabbalat ol means uh, accepting the yoke, accepting the burden. And not like one who serves his beloved, as shall be explained. It's, again, it's not... You know, we're trying to differentiate types of relationships. There's the parent, there's the child-parent relationship. There's the 
the simple servant relationship. There's this uh, uh, loving servant relationship. There's uh, the relationship between two people that love each other in a you know romantic relationship. He's saying this is different from, from this is this is a loving servant. It's a different type of relationship. He is getting sustained in some way, shape, or form. If not heavily paid, you know, he's getting food. I mean, he's there is some transaction. What's interesting is that he's put. What's interesting is he's putting it, the motivation, as a form of appreciation for the master or for the work. I'm just saying, like, it's worthy for me to be dedicated because look at how great this is. I'm excited about this. This task and experience, not because of what I'm getting out of it, but it's such a worthy. And you know what I would do? I would actually do over here. I would differentiate between, I think, chesed and gvura, or love and respect, because I think although we're using the term love again and again, are we using the word love? Did we even mention love? Joy. We didn't mention love. Joy. He says not love, but I think that a lot of this. No, he does say he serves master with love and, and much affection. But I think that a big piece of this is actually kvura, which is respect. Because love typically, well, I mean, it shouldn't, but typically implies what I'm getting from it. Whereas respect is more of like, I respect and value this for what it is. I can value this as opposed to thinking what I get out of it. It's like, again, think about our relationship. So ideally, we've talked about this many times. If someone says, I love you, it should mean that I love who you are, and I love you, but oftentimes it means I love how you make me feel, which is the opposite of saying I love you. What, what kind of keeps that in check? It's really the, uh, the idea of respect. Respect is really more important to relationship than love, because respect means I respect you for who you are. Just to give you a quick, something I've shared many times before, if you share the same opinion, if, some, if you're speaking with somebody about any topic, and they say something that you agree with, you might say something like, oh, I love what you just said. You agree with it. If somebody says something that you disagree with, you might say, hopefully, in a healthy situation, I respect, I respect that. When do you use the word I respect? When you don't want to say you disagree. Well, it's when you do disagree. It's when, you, it's when there's distinction. In other words, respect, the word respect is evoked when there's difference. Love is when there's sameness. Respect is when there's Hopefully, there's respect, but when there's difference, that ideally leads to, that that the context yeah, is respect. Yeah, because love is kind of like could be, well, we don't know where these emotions begin and end, and we all feel like we're kind of like one big, you know, we're getting closer, like oneness. And then respect, you have to have a, a diverse, a difference. Right, respect by by definition. I mean, gvura by respect is gvura. Gvura by definition is boundaries and separation. It's difference. That's the, literally the definition of gvura. So again, if you hear a sermon, and you're like, oh, I love the sermon. It means you agree with it. If you hear somebody sharing their opinion, and you say, I respect your opinion, it always means, I disagree. I have a different opinion. Best case scenario, at least I respect it. So what's the point over here? The point, the point here is, what I'm trying to bring out is, that I think this servant, if I were to interject my own framing a little bit, which I am, I think this servant has a very powerful blend of chesed and gvura. You see, a son is all chesed, love. The other servant that we talked about that feels the yoke, that's all gvura. That's all like, you know, I got to do it. This one feels love 
and, and respect at the same time. Right? Feels the difference. Feels like this is not my father. This is my master. This is not a task that, that I would necessarily choose on my own. This is a task that has been placed upon me. But I can appreciate the value of this task. That's powerful. I can appreciate the value of this task. I'm calling it a task. It's not something, again, I would have intuitively chosen, like a child intuitively senses the father, right? So this is a task that has been placed upon me, but I can, I'm mature enough to, re, and whatever it is enough, to appreciate the task at hand, to value it, and to respect it for what it is, and therefore to dedicate myself to it in a way that's beyond being crushed by it, and also beyond loving it. There's a unique value here, yeah? Good. If he does it because of that, then he says, we'll talk about that later. That's another persona. Someone who does the task because they, they get a fulfillment from it, that might be, that's nothing wrong with that, but that's another persona. We're, we're in, in a very specific space here. Someone who is doing it not because of self, uh, self-fulfillment. Someone who's doing it feeling that it's a higher authority, right? But who doesn't feel like crushed by the higher authority, feels almost empowered and, and incredibly grateful to have the opportunity to do that. Not like a child to a parent, but as a, as a joyful and loyal servant to the master. Again, we're walking a bit of a, you know, there's a bit of a, of a, of a fine line over here of what exactly it is. Can you occupy different spaces? Sure. And I would say, excellent question. And I would say that when it comes, let's think about ourselves and a mitzvah. I've shared this before. But like, you know, between different mitzvot, we might be these different personas. Like when it comes to one mitzvah, we might be like the child. Like, I love doing this mitzvah. It feels so natural. It feels so normal to me. Like, even if God never commanded me to do this, I would do it on my own. Like, I get it. I understand why it's a mitzvah. That's one mitzvah. Another mitzvah is like, I have no idea why I'm doing this. I would rather not do this, but I got to do it. That's the crushed, crushed. That's the, that's the simple servant. Then there's other ones where, you know, th- then this middle ground that we're talking about now, where I wouldn't have chosen it on my own, right? I can't say that I um, inherently feel the value of it, but I appreciate that it's coming from a higher authority. I appreciate the higher value. I'm dedicated to doing it, but I still feel like I'm serving a higher power. Yeah. So it could be within our own experience, line up three different mitzvot, and one I'm like a child, one I'm like a servant, one I'm like a joyful servant. 100%. Yeah. So if it says God was with Joseph, so we can assume God is with, with all of us in a small ways. Yeah. Not like Joseph, but then, you know, Joseph was a successful man, so that we can also, we're put in positions to exceed, not to fail, to succeed, not to fail. So we're put in positions to succeed in what we're good at. Joseph's in a pit, but he's really good at like, you know, organizing uh, contests with the snakes and keep them all happy, you know, things like that. You know, let's pick the shortest straw and like, oh, he's the shortest snake, ah. You know, so, but we, but he was good at- Perhaps. <laughs> was good at those things. And then um, I, I say that uh, if we're good at it, then we can self-generate motivation, even though we're altruistic, we can self-motivate generation through all, uh, being, even though it's difficult, I mean, our life purpose could be extremely difficult, but if we're good at it, then we're, we, we come to enjoy it. But it's from a, like, a yoke type of thing. It's like, oh, I, I got to do this. It's st- I right. do this, but 
I don't do this, I'm a walking dead man. And remember, it, going back to the Yosef analogy, would he have chosen to be a slave to Potiphar? The answer is no. A child, that's not the child. He's working for Potiphar. There's no way to call that relationship child. On the other hand, is he a crushed servant? No, he shows up with positivity. Now, why? <coughs> I don't know if he's serving Potiphar as much as he's serving his true master, which is God. In other words, it's consistent with what this discourse says. In Potiphar's house, he feels that God is with him. You know what that means? He feels that less than serving Potiphar, you know who he's really serving? He is living the life that God has put him in right now. He is living the life that God has chosen for him. So him showing up dedicated with his best face is serving the ultimate master. Potiphar is an accessory to the larger picture. Now let's continue. We're going to do one and a half more, just quickly. Okay, so um, all of this after the parentheses, second paragraph 36, all of this, halfway down in that second paragraph, because of the greatness of the master, because the servant recognizes his greatness and therefore attaches himself to him with love and much affection. He therefore subjugates himself. This is not a son. This is still a servant. Subjugates himself and his body to serve him with services that relate to the master's honor, sustenance, the arranging of his table, conducting the affairs of his home, etc. The servant does servant things, but from a place of love that comes from appreciation of the bigger picture. Let's continue. One more paragraph. This is it. The master reciprocates. Because of this, because of how the servant shows up, the master reciprocates in kind. The master also relies upon him and trusts him and gives him honor. This is way more than the simple servant. The one who shows up and says, okay, I'm going to do everything that you asked me to do, doesn't get any extra work. Because it's not that relationship. You're like, okay, I'll give you the minimum. You're, you're doing the minimum. This one, the master gives him more and more for all that belongs back inside, for all that belongs to the master. Vessels of gold and silver and all the wealth of his home, he places in the hand of his servant. He trusts him with the keys to the kingdom. So the master is, is, is the vessel of God. Right. In this, such as, he gives the two examples that we read about. In, in, the, in, the, uh, in, in the, uh, the, the, the pregame, such as Eliezer, servant of Abraham, of Avram, who was the elder of Avram's home and ruler over all that was his, etc. And like Yosef, who, who succeeded in the house of his master. For there is abundant blessing from a servant such as this in the master's home in doubled and redoubled measure. This is the servant that you want. This is the one that is, doesn't walk around bent over and saying, I will do everything that you ask perfectly. This is the one who's excited about the work. This is the one who's excited not because they're a child and you're the parent, but because they have come to appreciate the value of the task, the opportunity that they have to be in this space to fulfill that task and, is there, and therefore is doing it with not only dedication, but also joy and alacrity and excitement and enthusiasm and positivity and that 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 the way that person shows up breeds trust and breeds this type of kind of mutual understanding between the servant and the master the master trusts the servant with more and more and more responsibility which is why we find that when you know when avram is getting ready to to charge eliezer on this mission he gives him everything. He says, take, take it all, blank check, take whatever you need. 
when Potiphar has uh, Joseph, has Yosef in his employ, he gives him everything. When the warden has Yosef in his prison, he gives him everything. Why? This is someone who showed, shows up, not bent over, not broken, not like a, you know, like a shmata, someone who shows up with confidence, positivity, enthusiasm, appreciation for the opportunity. Where does, right, where does it come from? Where does it come from? It all comes from faith in Hashem. Faith in Hashem. That this is my role right now. I'll conclude with a story. A story that I heard directly from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, a blessed memory, at one of the Chabad rabbis' conferences in New York a few years ago. Rabbi Sachs passed away way too young a few years ago. Big loss to the uh, to world jury. But I remember him telling the story that when he was a college student in the UK, he decided over one summer break to visit the greatest leaders of world Jewry. This is decades ago. And amongst the people that he saw, he visited the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he, he said that the Rebbe turned the tables on the conversation. With all of the other great Jewish leaders and rabbis and whatever spiritual leaders, you know, he was asking the question, they would respond. The Rebbe let him get in a few questions, and the Rebbe said, now I want to ask you a few questions. <laughs> Turns the table. The Rebbe says to him, what are you doing for your fellow Jews on campus? What are you doing for Jewish life on campus? I forgot if he was in Oxford or Cambridge, one of the two. He says, right, are they locked out? No, they're probably locked they out. They just don't know. They just open the door. They don't know. It's open. Is it open? It was. Thank you. All right, so the rabbi asked Jonathan Sachs, who, by the way, wasn't a rabbi then and wasn't even sure that he wanted to become a rabbi. He wanted to go into philosophy or become a lawyer or whatever it was. He had all these other options that he could be. A rabbi was one, was one possibility. Anyway, so the, so the rabbi asked him, what are you doing for, um, for, for Jew, Judaism you know, on campus? So Jonathan Sachs says to him, he says, and, you know, in the circumstances that I find myself in, I'm not, a, Rebbe stops him, he says, no one finds themselves in any circumstances. <clears throat> you don't find yourself in circumstances. You create your reality. And if Hashem has put you here, you have an opportunity. You can't blame circumstances. In the circumstances that I find myself in, it's about to blame the context. Don't blame the context. The context is a line for you to do the next great thing. And so this is the lesson of Joseph, of Yosef. This is the lesson of our text today, which we will continue, of course, next week. And the lesson is simply this. We have a choice how to show up. You know, some things naturally will show up with love and will feel very connected. Great. Those things we don't have to work on. But what about the other stuff? The other stuff that doesn't, that don't, the things that don't feel so natural to us. We have a choice. We could either feel like victims of divine subjugation, like, oh, you know, the old expression, it's hard to be a Jew. It's like, right, like the shtetl, like it's hard to be a Jew. Judaism is so hard. That's, that's a choice. Or we can choose to feel fortunate to have this opportunity to serve Hashem, to do a mitzvah, to stretch beyond our comfort zone, to do something for the ultimate master of all masters. And with that perspective, we show up with positivity and joy and a magnetism that others can see. And yeah, it may not be Jewish, but you know the book, The Secret? Remember that? The Secret? 
Yeah. It's all about the power of um, power of attraction. Right? What we put out there is what I mean, that's may not be uh, that the framing may not be Jewish, but the concept is Jewish. It's biblical. It's in our text today. When you show up that way, others respond with more trust. Others respond with more that when you're open, others are more open. When you're closed, others are closed. It's simple. Kabbalah says, the Zohar says, between us and God, when we are open and joyous, the, joy, the blessings are open. When we're closed and tight, the blessings are constricted above. Literally says that. The way we, it's, it's you know, it's like, it's the, the cycle of weather, whatever that's called. I forget what that's called. I remember learning it in social studies, I don't know, fifth grade, right? There's evaporation, condensation, and precipitation. Whatever falls below had originally risen from, whatever falls below, pre, well, no, previously rose up. What we, what we send above is what comes down below. And so my blessing for all of us this week. Jacob's ladder. Right, right. It goes up, then it comes down. That's like the donations in synagogue. <laughs> At church, they put the donation in the plate. Okay. In synagogue. It's Shabbos, so you can't anyway. In synagogue, <laughs> they throw the donations up in the air. Whatever God wants, he keeps. Whatever ah, God that's around. another joke. All right, fine. Uh, that's All right. <laughs> that's another. Here's the point. Here's the point. The point is like this. The point is that we have our attitude and our, the way we show up is in our hands. So this week, my blessing for all of us is that we should show up like Yosef. Show up like Eliezer. We don't know a lot as much about Eliezer than we know, as we know about Yosef. Show up with that positivity. Show up with faith in Hashem that this is going to be a good year. I know it's not a Jewish New Year, but it's a New Year anyway. The Rebbe once wished someone a uh, Happy New Year this time of year. They were shocked. The Rebbe said, yeah, it's a pasuk. Until him. Hashem yisper b'chsayvam. God counts according to the calculation of nations. Which means that if it's, a, if it's a secular new year, it also means something. And so what that means for us is it's a new year, a new slate for each of us. It doesn't matter how we showed up in 2023. Let's show up in 2024 like Yosef. Positive, even about the things that we didn't choose. Even about the things that otherwise could seem like a burden. Let's show up with positivity and joy. And with that positivity, the blessings will open for us and our families and our, our community, our people, and our world. And let us say, Amen. Thank you very much for joining me this morning for Kabbalah Cafe. And I banged the table, and now my Zoom is gone. All right. Yes, Annie. God bless and have a happy new Thank you. Annie, back at you. Blessings for everything. Good health and nachas. And so glad to have the opportunity to study together. Mariana, thank you. Matt, thank you. Alex, thank you. Ellen, thank you. Larry, thank you. Tony, thank you. Ray, thank you. Frank, good to see you and thank you. All right. We'll see you guys. Shavuot Tov. Have a great week. We'll see you guys soon. Have a great week. Thank you. Thank you.